I was praying with a young woman about your age. And when she was younger, she was um, involved in youth group, took a stand for her faith, was strong in the moral life. And one by one, her friends deserted her and left her. They criticized her. They told her she should be out partying. She should be out having sex. And she felt completely abandoned. And her one thing that kept her going was that she could sing in church. She loved to sing. She loved to sing in front of, of her church and, and to worship God. Shortly after, she was involved in a car crash. And the car crash was so traumatic that at that point in her life, fear gripped her. And it began to inhibit her for about 15 years. And she could no longer sing. Um, the doctors couldn't understand it, but her voice was no longer functioning. When we prayed with her, we, we led her through the five keys. We had her renounce fear, abandonment, isolation, loneliness. And after I prayed the prayer of command, I said, I want to ask you to, it was just a Holy Spirit moment, I said, I want you to do something you, you, have, you probably couldn't do. I want to ask you to try and sing something. And when she opened her mouth to sing, it was the most beautiful song I've ever heard. She sang that song by Matt Marr called Garden. Have you heard that song? You're making my heart a garden still. She was taking back her inheritance as a daughter of the king. This is what Unbound Ministry seeks to do. Freedom is our calling as Christians. I want to talk about what freedom really means. Galatians 5.1 tells us that it is for freedom that Christ set us free. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. Why did he break the chain of sin? Why did he break the chain of death in your life? It's so that you could live in freedom. There's something so profoundly unique and special about freedom to what it means to be human. Our modern sense of freedom is really incomplete. Since the Enlightenment, we've talked primarily about freedom in the negative sense. In fact, the, the particular American version is called negative liberty. It means that I'm free so long as no one else is telling me what to do. So as long as there's no tyrants in my life, I am free. And so freedom becomes reduced to something, a matter of choosing between one thing and another. As long as I can choose between Pizza Hut and Domino's, I am free. Isn't that glorious? And yet we know that's not true. And our Christian heritage, comes back, which comes even back to Greek philosophy, tells us that freedom has actually more to do with excellence. Freedom has to do more with being all that you were meant to be. Freedom looks more like a virtuoso performing a beautiful violin set, much more than it does choosing between one thing and another. You see, I tell people, you can be free from all the tyrants in the world, but you're still stuck with the tyrant of yourself. 
You can go off and live in a cabin, but you're still a slave. Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You see, there's something actually deeper to our human freedom than just choices. And it's even deeper, and it's actually the prerequisite for us being all that we can be. You know what it is? Freedom is tied to sonship. Freedom is tied to being and knowing and experiencing your life as a son or daughter of the Father. I had this pillow when I, I had this pillowcase when I was growing up. You, you know the Peanuts characters? It had all the Peanuts characters on it and Snoopy and all that. And it said, happiness is being part of the gang. I'm dating myself a little bit here. <clears throat> happiness is being one part of the gang. Well, guess what? Freedom is belonging to the Father. That's real freedom. It's living your life in the Father's embrace, knowing his heart for you, knowing his love for you, knowing that you have a place in the kingdom. You're not an accident. You're not an outcast. You're not a mistake. And it means discovering your true identity as a son or daughter of God. Freedom is belonging. Do you notice Jesus didn't say, if the Savior sets you free, if the Redeemer sets you free, you'll be free indeed. No, he said, if the Son sets you free. Jesus came to give you that place of sonship. He came to restore you to the relationship with God the Father as our Father, my Father. Did Jesus come to, to redeem you from sin? Yes. Did He come to to deal with the problem of your brokenness, yes. But the reason for that, what's the end? He came to bring you to and show you the Father. I was here once for a youth conference. I brought up some students, and I went to confession, and I was immature at the time. And I said to the, to the priest, and, and Rhett and I were talking about, is it okay that we share what we shared in confession? I said, I said, I don't know if the Lord can forgive me. I've done this many times. And the brother turned around and he said, look at the cross. And like, like the Verizon guy, he said, can you believe it now? And I looked at the cross and I saw the Father's heart. And I said, yeah, it's undeniable. It's undeniable that the Father loves me because he gave his only son for me. Jesus came to reveal to you the Father's heart and to bring you to the Father's house. I want to tell you my story. I was the uh, third of four children, and I had the, the wonderful experience of being the different one. You might call me the black sheep of the family. See, there was, there was this, the saying in, in my house that, you know, there's, there's the truth and then there's Matt's version of the truth. I just had a different perspective on everything. You know, I just saw things differently and I experienced things differently. And my brothers didn't really understand me. My parents, they didn't know how to handle me. 
And so my experience of life when I was young was that I was different. And the way that the enemy worked in my life was that he wanted to convince me that something was wrong with me and that I would relate to life through that. And the lie that I swallowed, the lie that I swallowed that became a foundational pattern for my life was that no one could ever understand me. I walked around with that. I meet somebody new, hi, nice to meet you. I expected to be misunderstood. And so I related to life through that one lie. The enemy was holding me back from my true identity, my destiny, and from understanding who I am. So I felt like wherever I went, I didn't belong. So I responded to life through that lie. I would be dishonest. I would put on a, a, a false self, a, a, a false image of who I was, something that I thought people would accept me for. As a result, I couldn't form very healthy relationships. My, my friendships were very, very shallow because I wasn't willing to bring all that I was. I was always holding back something because I was afraid of being misunderstood. When someone tried to correct me, my poor parents, they tried to correct me, I would get so defensive. It was like someone was twisting a knife inside of me because I interpreted their correction as rejection. I experienced it as rejection. And so I would justify my behavior and I would make excuses and I would be combative and rebellious and argumentative. This was the pattern that Satan was working into my life. This was his strategy and it was rooted in a lie. It was rooted in deception. And then Jesus happened. When I gave my life to the Lord, the first thing that happened was the insecurity was broken in my life. That thing inside of me that just cared so much and, and had to hide, I didn't care anymore. I had Jesus. I didn't care if somebody rejected me. So the Lord began to give me wisdom about who I was. And over the years, uh, some of the things, some of the uh, manifestations of this uh, pattern began to break off my life. Sadness was gone. Depression lifted off of my life. It coincided with my meeting of my future spouse, which I think is a, a pretty good coincidence. But it wasn't until I was in my late 20s and had a family of my own that I finally discovered what the root was. I was having a conversation with my father and he, he questioned one of the decisions that I was making. And I just exploded. I mean, I let him have it. This stuff just came out of me. Anger and, and, you know, you never understand and you don't trust me and blah, blah, blah. And my father being, you know, a very patient and humble man, he sat me down. I, I quickly repented and I realized that the Holy Spirit was showing me something. And as we prayed through it, I finally discovered what that root lie was that no one could understand me. And I renounced that lie and it was broken. And I immediately had the deep understanding that the Father knew me and understood me all my life. Even when no one could understand me, the Father who created me knew me. And I live in that reality today. 
And that's what I want for you. I want you to be able to take these five keys, to be able to use them in your life, to ask the Holy Spirit, what are those areas of deception and bondage that the gospel, that I can respond to the gospel and find freedom? You know what the irony is? Guess what my vocation is? I'm a teacher. The gift he's given me is to teach and to, to train people in Unbound. Can you see how the enemy would want to twist that by saying no one can understand you? The enemy is trying to rob you of your destiny. He's trying to rob you of what God has given you, your inheritance. And so we use the five keys to help people to claim that inheritance in Christ. So first we need to talk about the D word, deliverance. For many people, this word is a little scary. You might think of a movie set in the Ozarks that might be before your time. Deliverance might make you think about exorcism. Deliverance might make you think about certain ministries that you've seen maybe on television and radical, dramatic confrontations with evil spirits. That is not our ministry, and that is not the primary meaning of deliverance. Deliverance is actually your inheritance as a baptized believer. We have already been delivered in Christ. Amen? Amen. Your baptism was your deliverance. Do you know what the, the most accurate and, and profound sign of your, your baptism is? It's the exodus. You passed from slavery into freedom, and you're headed to the promised land. Colossians 1.13 says, we have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. You have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. So freedom means moving out of the reign of one kingdom and into the reign of another kingdom. When you lived in one kingdom, you operated under a certain set of rules, a certain set of restrictions, and you were a slave to sin. When you were baptized, when you came to have a relationship with Jesus, you decided to follow him, you entered into another kingdom with a new king. There's a new sheriff in town. His name is Jesus. And he's got a new commandment. It's love. And so there's an old way of life, and there's a new way of life. But some of us, we're still caught in patterns of thinking that belong to the old kingdom. And they don't transfer into the new. We need to leave it behind. And so while we're, we're completely placed in the, in the kingdom of God, the life of the Son of God needs to be worked through every area. We're in the reign of God, but we need to be fully reigned in. Amen? I've got areas of my life that need to be reigned in. This is the good news of the kingdom. So deliverance has gotten a bad name because people think that deliverance is about the devil. Deliverance is no more about the devil then the Exodus was about Pharaoh. Do you read the Exodus story and say, 
oh, that's a great story about Pharaoh. I can learn a lot. No. It's about the, the reign of God. It's about the deliverer, Jesus. And so we don't approach deliverance prayer as something scary. In Unbound, what we are teaching is a path that is simple and safe and subject to the Holy Spirit. It's something that can be reproduced and doesn't rely on an anointed leader in order for it to work. We are focusing on people. We're focusing on their stories and helping them to respond to the gospel and close the door to the enemy. People sometimes say, well, wouldn't you like to, you know, have a really cool confrontation with the devil and you win a battle? I said, that might be nice, but you know what I'd rather do? I'd rather go into the enemy's camp and destroy every stronghold that he's got in a person's life, burn it to the ground and dance on the ashes. That's a victory to me. And that's what we do. We're not interested in confronting or attacking evil spirits. We're helping people to close the door, the legal access that they've given to the enemy, one by one, so that the enemy has no authority there. You see, it's a contradiction for evil spirits to be able to work in your life because you've been purchased, you've been redeemed. And so it's about us taking up our authority who we are as sons and daughters of God. The truth is, we don't always live in this reality. We don't feel like we're living in the kingdom of God. We struggle with small slaveries and addictions, misunderstandings, fears, and bitterness. Some people say, I feel like I live under a cloud. I, feel, I see everybody else living this abundant life and it's just not happening for me. At whatever point we get stuck, we are under the influence of a kingdom that we should be out of. Make no mistake, the enemy does have a strategy for your life. He has a plan to steal what's yours. Imagine that you're standing in front of a door that has five locks. In Christ, you have all five keys to open the door. If you use just a couple of keys, the door will remain closed. These five keys that I'm going to talk about tap into the power of the gospel. They are actually responses to the good news. Jesus encourages us for all five of them, their responses. When he begins his proclamation, he says, repent and believe the good news, the first key. So we start by listening to people. Every person has a story that's worth listening to. These are the stories that we've lived. It's how we've interpreted our story that reveals our identity. How do I see myself? But our memories of our life experience is just part of the story. It's just your small story. So I saw myself as the one who is misunderstood. I related to life through that identity. But redemption means breaking out of the small story into the bigger story. And the bigger story is the love of the Father and the Son. And you are part of that story. 
Any baseball fans here? Two years ago, the Baltimore Orioles were the worst team in baseball for a very long time. They tried everything. They fired their coach. They added new players. Nothing worked. They went through the entire season dead last. And then came the last game of the season. Does anybody remember it? Who did they play? The Red Sox. The villainous, awful Boston Red Sox. The Red Sox had built this huge team with free agents, and they were supposed to win it all that year. And they had gone on a horrific 10-game slide. They just lost, 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 lost. And they had to win one game to get into the playoffs. And that day, the Baltimore Orioles defeated the Boston Red Sox in extra innings. It was one of the greatest days in baseball history. <laughs> and the Orioles piled on each other. Now tell me something. 20 years from now, 30 years from now, will they be saying, oh yeah, that Baltimore Orioles team, that was the worst team that year? Oh, what a bunch of losers they were? No. They are the team that knocked the Boston Red Sox out of the playoffs. Do you know what they were the next year? Most of the season they were in second place. Does your story matter? Does your identity matter? It does. It's going to affect everything from how you approach the sacraments to how you pray to how you approach your moral life to how you understand your faith and understand God and how you relate to Him. Your story matters. And redemption means God is breaking us out of that small story so we can enter into the larger story. I'm redeemed. I have been bought back. Whatever story was was being played, whatever the soundtrack of your life was, God is changing it and redeeming it to something new and beautiful and wonderful. In the book, The Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky, he describes how even if something were so precious to come to pass to make all the sufferings of life worth redemption, and the character said, I still wouldn't believe it. Well, I want to tell you something so precious has come to pass that has redeemed your life. It happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus has redeemed you. So freedom means breaking out of the bondage and the limitations of our small story. Every hurt, every rejection, every sin can be redeemed so that we can enter into our true identity. I tell people all the time, you know what my biggest asset to this ministry is? The junk I went through when I was younger. It's now my greatest asset. It doesn't hurt anymore. It can't destroy me anymore. It's actually something God can use for good because I can hear people and I can have compassion. Isn't that awesome? So let's go through the five keys. The first key is repentance and faith. In Mark 1.15, Jesus comes out of the desert and he begins his public ministry with this proclamation. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Some people think of repentance as labor. The tough work of going back and looking at all your sins and trying harder. There's a couple in our community at home. They always joke when I'm, we're confessing sins and they say, well, do better, try harder. 
And they joke because a lot of times that's the attitude we take towards repentance. Do better, try harder. Sometimes we dread the word repentance because we think it's about stirring up our willpower and making more resolutions to be more disciplined. But the biblical term repentance is the Greek word metanoia. Metanoia means a changed mind that leads to a change in life. A change of mind that results in a change of action. You see, for many of us, sorrow for sins is easy. Going to confession, we, we are very faithful to confess our sins. And it's easy to see our sin. It's right there. Yuck, it's gross. And we go to confession. But we don't take the time to allow the Spirit to change our minds. One priest, and we, have a, we know a lot of priests that we've trained who use Unbound uh, in the confessional, either as before the absolution or as part of the, 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 the penance. They'll give them the, the keys to use in penance. And one priest said to me, he said, you know, before Unbound, I felt like I was just cutting the heads off of the wheat. The sin just kept coming back, and people came back and back and back. And it's because we don't take seriously our, our need to change our minds about our sin. You see, if you go and you confess, you're receiving forgiveness, you're receiving absolution, and that's wonderful. But if you're not repenting, you're still stuck in the mindset that is either justifying your sin or excusing it or uh, making a home for it in your life. So Jesus radically changed everything when he said, repent and believe the good news. He combined the two into one act of conversion. So it's not just sorrow for sins, but it's faith as well. It's saying, God, this was wrong. Lord, I'm sorry that I chose my way. And Lord, I see that your way is right. I choose your way. So the change of mind is not a way of looking back. It's not introspection, but it's actually going forward. So we enter the kingdom of God by faith. So many times we identify our sin, but we don't identify the lies that we believed when we sin. So a woman comes, a mother comes to confession and she says, I yelled at my kids again. Every week, I yelled at my kids again. I'm angry. I'm angry all the time. But what she hasn't addressed is the fact that she's struggling with lies like, I'm all alone. No one wants to help me. Maybe independence, pride, self-sufficiency. Until we get at the root, we're just cutting the heads off the wheat. There are three aspects to repentance. The first is conversion. John Paul II said, conversion is accepting by personal decision the saving sovereignty of God and becoming his disciple. I always tell my Protestant friends that one. I said, did the Pope really say that? It's not Billy Graham or something? No, the Pope said that. The greatest deliverance anyone could receive is surrendering to Jesus Christ as Lord. The second aspect of repentance is repentance of sin. 
Sin is disobedience. We are led by the Spirit to have sorrow for our sin. But we should not mistake sorrow for repentance. It's that sorrow that Paul says, godly sorrow should lead to repentance. 2 Corinthians, it says, For you became sorrowful as God intended and were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So in other words, repentance means turning from sin and turning towards life. It leaves no regret. It leaves no guilt. It leaves no condemnation. The third aspect of repentance is faith. It means we come into agreement with God about what He said, and we express confidence in His Word. So as we humble ourselves and as we go to confession, we want that transformation process to go deeper. Many folks who come to us for Unbound have confessed their sins again and again and again. They firmly believe that they have been forgiven, but they failed to access the power of repentance. So we really want to see this key empowering people in the sacrament of reconciliation. The second key is forgiveness. There is no more powerful weapon than we have been given against our enemy than the power of forgiveness. Jesus gave his life for the forgiveness of sins. So I'm going to briefly touch on this key, but I, I have a whole talk that I'm going to share with you later. The next talk is on, on forgiveness, and then we're going to share on the Father's blessing will be the third talk. In Matthew 6:12, Jesus said, "Forgive us our sins, forgive us our debts, sorry, as we have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins." The message is very clear. Unforgiveness blocks us from experiencing God's love. But forgiveness releases it. We when we forgive, we become open vessels to receive more of His mercy. And notice that it says, deliver us from the evil one in between two prayers of forgiveness. Unforgiveness is real bondage, and it leads us to torment. It is the unmerciful servant who is turned over to be tormented. So it's important that we know the source of forgiveness, that it's the cross. We release forgiveness through the power of the cross. In Christ, we have the power to forgive, and we lean into His act of sacrifice to be able to speak those words, engage our wills, and to forgive. So I'll talk more about that later, and I'll talk about 15 reasons why we don't forgive. There are a lot of reasons. They're all based on lies. The third key is renunciation. Renunciation means I'm done with it. 
I make no place for this in my life anymore. I take my life back. And I do that in the person and in the power of Jesus. Renunciation breaks any legal access that the enemy has to your life. You see, from the garden, the enemy sought to influence mankind through lies, through getting us to agree with him through sin, and he would gain authority over us in those areas. One of my friends was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And when he was first diagnosed, he had heard a lot about prostate cancer and how scary it was and everything that had gone into it. And the doctor told him the news and his head went down immediately and he shook his head. And the doctor started to get nervous. And suddenly he said, I will not fellowship with you. And the doctor was like, are you all right? <laughs> you see, he knew he had to make a decision in that moment. Was he going to fellowship with fear? Or was he going to be a son and exercise his God-given right to faith? And he decided in that moment, and he needed to say it out loud. He needed to hear himself say it. I will not fellowship with fear. Fear is not going to run my life. And the, the amazing thing about his story is he and another brother uh, went through chemotherapy. They went through the whole process, and they were called the Sunshine Boys. They brought their Bibles. They brought faith to that room, which was filled with fear, filled with the fear of death. And they ministered to everyone. He went into remission. Uh, he served as a missionary to Haiti. He was one of our great uh, saints in Unbound Ministry. And his last mission to Haiti, he got sick again. And by the time he got back from Haiti, it was too late for him to uh, have any kind of treatment. And he died in a tremendous amount of pain. But I can tell you, brothers and sisters, I was there in his last moments, and he was not afraid. He was looking forward to Jesus coming. He was looking forward, he loved trains, to catching the train that was going to take him home. Brothers and sisters, that's your inheritance. That's what Jesus has won for you. You have the right to that life. That's a life of abundance. It's not a life free of suffering or temptation or pain. It's a life free of bondage. It's a life where you can choose the truth. So learning to renounce your enemies and his lies will enable you to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always working in you. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. All truth. The Holy Spirit is completely committed to bringing you to the truth in every area of your life. And so he's exposing things. Even this morning, some of you, are, things are being stirred up and being exposed. Ways of thinking, lies that you, you hear someone's story and you say, oh, that's my story too. Records from the third and fourth centuries, Christians speak about a time after conversion but before baptism when the newly catechized would go into in-depth instruction 
and deep prayer, continuous prayer for deliverance, especially the last week before Easter. And at the Easter vigil, they would stand facing the world. They would renounce the devil and all his works and all his empty promises. So they would face the West. They would face the, the setting sun, the darkness. So they would literally face that kingdom and renounce the shameful ways. I renounce paganism. They would, re, they would ren all those things would be in their minds. All the things, all the things they had been engaged in. Then they would turn, and they would face the rising of the sun, the east. And they would go down into the water, and they would come up, and they would profess the creed. They knew that if there was any hidden bondage, it would later threaten not only that individual's faith but the unity of the whole community. We need to take more seriously the need for deliverance. How many of you have prayed or, or recited that rite every time a little baby's baptized? You stand up and you say, I renounce Satan and all his works and all his empty promises, right? Have you ever thought about what his works and what his promises are to you? What is it exactly? that you need to renounce. Not just in a general way, but specifically. What is his strategy in your life? The second thing about renunciation is that when we can identify and name our enemies and their strategies, we will gain power over them. When you understand what the enemy's been trying to do with, in your life, it's not as confusing. It's not as overwhelming. You don't feel helpless. So when we listen to a person's story, we want to look at the whole person, uncovering entryways for the enemy and observing how these patterns began. At the same time, we want to recognize that demonic influence in a person's life is normally an interaction between evil spirits, sin, emotional and psychological scars, developmental circumstances, personal strengths and weaknesses, and your own free will. You know it's perfectly possible for you to sin without evil spirits and being involved at all. So we want to recognize, we don't want to put all of our focus on the spiritual. We don't want to put all of our focus on the psychological. We recognize that it's all connected. It's working together. It's part of a strategy. Renunciation is most effective when we can identify that foundational lie, the door that was opened that gave the enemy access to our life. For example, if we nurture our hurts, you hold on to your hurt. This leads to resentment and bitterness. This is a common strategy. Resentment and unforgiveness can lead to blame, judgment, criticism, self-justification, and hatred. Sound familiar? All of this ends up becoming surrounded by hopelessness and despair, and it becomes a web. Years later, we just feel depressed, and we don't even know why. 
The fourth key is authority. In Luke 1, 70, Zechariah was filled with the Spirit and he began to prophesy. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke from the mouth of his holy prophets of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. We do indeed have enemies that work to rob us. But you have to understand that we've been saved from them. Your enemy has already been defeated. Amen? Completely. Humiliated. Completely defeated by the cross. So authority means the power to act on behalf of someone else. As sons and daughters of God, we carry His authority over our enemies. When we have repented of sin, forgiven our enemies, or forgiven others, and identified and renounced the deceptions in our lives, the enemy's power is broken. So when we speak a word of command, we are acting on the truth. We're not going outside of our authority. We're not, we're not provoking something. We're not searching out evil spirits. We are simply coming into agreement with the person that the enemy has no more right to be there in this area of their life. We always speak in the name of Jesus, which means in his person, in his character, and in union with him who is Savior and Lord. If spirits are commanded to leave and there is present unconfessed sin, unforgiveness, or agreement with the enemy, then you may be confronting spirits and provoke a manifestation or conflict. So we believe that if you close these doors to the enemy's access in your life, a five-year-old with the faith the size of a mustard seed could command those spirits to leave, and they would have to go. Many deliverance models focus on the confrontation with demons. We're not interested in confronting demons. We are helping people to take what's theirs in Christ. We, especially as Catholics, need to understand the authority that we carry. Sometimes we, we, we put our priests or our religious sisters on a pedestal. And, and we, we, we do want to recognize their, call, their special call that they have. But we cannot abdicate our responsibility to take our stand against the enemy. Does that make sense? Amen? The fifth key is the Father's blessing. And I'm going to talk more about this, so I'm just going to briefly touch on this. What has been robbed is our ability to hear the Father's voice, to hear the Father speak over us of His love, of your identity in Christ, of your belonging to Him. And so 
it's not enough. Everything that we do with the first four keys is really to set up the fifth key. I love the fifth key. It's why I do what I do. It's that people, you know, without the, the voice of their enemy in their ears, without that, that area of bondage in their life, they can now hear clearly the voice of their father. For me, I heard for the first time my father say, I understand you, son. I'm with you, son. I know you completely, and I love you. I could not hear that so long as I was in agreement with the lie that I'm always misunderstood. All blessing is traced back to the heart of God. We sing that hymn, praise God from whom all blessings flow. God made us in his image. And the first thing he did was he blessed us. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and birds of the air. In other words, God looked at you and I and he said, I want some more. I like it. I want more of it. You ever have just an amazing meal? And you say, oh, I want more of that. My wife and I say, I want to stick my face in that. <laughs> that is awesome. God saw everything that he had made, and he, behold, it was very good. What was in God's heart when he spoke those words? Great pleasure and delight. Great pleasure and delight. That's what the enemy has sought to rob you, and that's what Jesus came to restore. Blessing has to do with speaking well of a person. It imparts someone the ability to someone the ability to thrive, to prosper, to succeed. I don't care who you are or how holy you are or where you are in your walk with God, you need the Father's blessing. You need it. If you try to do the Jesus thing, if you try to, to I'm just going to be like Jesus, you're, you're on a, a project destined for failure. Because everything that Jesus did, he saw the Father doing. He was one with the Father's heart. And three times in his life, he heard the Father break in from heaven and say, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. God's plan is that the family and the church would speak blessing. I'll conclude with this. Some people have said that the greatest deception that the devil ever pulled was that he doesn't exist. I'd say that's a pretty good deception, but the greatest deception that the devil ever pulled off was that God is not a good father, is that convincing God's children that God cannot be trusted. Jesus came to destroy the devil's works, and you could say that this is his greatest work. In the Father's kingdom, you belong to the Eternal Father, the Almighty One, and in Jesus, you can come to him, before him, without shame, and bring great delight to his heart by simply saying, Abba, Father.
Abba, Father. George MacDonald said, the biggest thing in life is to cry Father with a full heart. It's the biggest thing in life is to cry Father with a full heart.